and you're listening to Thinking Off Piste, a podcast for adventurers. We share inspiring stories from professional mountaineers, skiers, boarders, bikers, climbers and hikers who have gone against the grain, abandoned their comfort zone and found success through their dare-to-be-different attitude. Thinking Off Piste is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass. Today I'll be catching up with Caroline Leon, a Dubai-based adventurer who set the record for being the first female mountaineer to climb 10 of the highest peaks across the Middle East and North Africa region in a record time of 28 days. Caroline completed her epic adventure after having recovered from a horrific accident back in 2015. How's your situation over there with like COVID and stuff? Oh, it's fine. We uh, we had a couple of weeks of lockdown at the very beginning, about a year ago. And since then, it's been very, um, very free, which is good. Um, so we uh, have to wear masks outside and, and the whole country is getting vaccinated. But other than that, it's it's fairly free and liberal, which is a good thing. Yeah, it sounds like you guys have had it pretty good. Yeah, look, I, I definitely see the benefit for sure in being cautious and and um, making sure that people don't get sick, but then at the same time, at what cost? Yeah. So I feel like Dubai's kind of had a, a good balance between like we don't want to shut businesses down and, and send people out of work and really cripple people financially, but yeah. then at the same time, we also want to be cautious and, and care for people's health. So look, it's a fine balance and it's a very controversial topic. Yeah. I'm so jealous of a lot of my friends who live in like, I think I've got a few friends in Melbourne and Sydney and they just look like they're having a great time. We've been in lockdown for so long. We actually come out. Um, so they're going to open like indoor areas as of Mondays. Is that tomorrow? So like booked straight into a spa, <laughs> driving straight oh, down no. tonight. But yeah, we've had like, it's been pretty shut down, which is quite boring. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying about closing down the businesses and like the economy. It's like the cost of it. Yeah, look, not just the, the cost, but definitely like in regards to people's mental health. Mm. If you can't leave your house and if you can't see your friends and if you can't see your family and uh, it really becomes very isolating and that in itself is is not good for anybody yeah. Um, irrespective of, of COVID or not. So I don't know. So Caroline, do you remember the first time you went climbing? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. I went, um, do you know, I grew up in, in Sydney and I used to climb a lot as an amateur climber. Um, we used to go swimming in the ocean and then climb the cliffs in, in Coogee. And they were gargantuan cliffs, maybe about 100, 100 and a little bit more meters. Um, wow. Just climbing in a swimming costume and, and like barefoot, hands and feet, climb all the way up, you know, watch the surf, climb all the way down. Um, so, yeah, I've been climbing for a long time, but always as an amateur and never... I never had lessons or it was never professional. Did you have a cliff jump? Yes, many times. Yeah, in Canada a couple of times, in Sydney all the time. Yeah, loads. But do you know what's interesting? I've heard I've heard some horror stories about cliff jumping as well, people breaking their necks and breaking their spines. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty dangerous, I suppose. Only think about like you climb up, but really you have no gauge of what rocks are, how shallow in the water. So yeah. 
I'm not surprised. Yeah, and then how you land in the water as well. Like when you're jumping from a certain height, water feels like metal, like you're jumping into lead. It's so, <laughs> you have a cliff bump. Yeah, bond. no, I have, but I've never, I haven't had a bad jump before, but I've definitely heard stories. Um, yeah. Yeah, but when your body slaps against the water, it feels like you're landing in concrete. It's like when you like belly flop and then you just get that red ring mark. <laughs> um, what about the sport? What about climbing do you love the most? Uh, what about climbing? Look, I'm not a professional climber. I'm definitely mm. an amateur climber. I just, uh, there's something very primordial about it and I like that. I like being outside. I like hiking. I like climbing mountains. And I used to really like just see cliffs and just feel like it was something that was very easy. It came very easy and natural to me. Um, And I enjoyed that. So it's just, it's more just about, I, I can't put my finger on it, but it's just about being outside. And it's just this freeing, beautiful feeling of just like, seeing this rock face and just climbing up and, and yeah, climbing down. It's, it's beautiful, but it's more about to do with the whole outdoor aspect rather than actually climbing. Yeah. That totally resonates with me because I feel like, so I love skiing, for example, and whenever I hit the mountains and I just see the snow and I'm just seeing the beautiful landscapes in the view, it's like you find a fundamentally happy place inside you and you're like, just like feels really peaceful. So I understand what you mean. And it's also about being present, I feel. Like when you do sports like skiing and hiking, it really is you're just present in the moment. You're not on your phone scrolling through Instagram. You're not like distracted or trying to multitask. You're in this moment. And and the moment itself is just very beautiful and you get to appreciate nature and appreciate what your physical body can do. It's uh, There's something about being present that's just very beautiful yeah I actually read a study which um some, something they said in it was that you're most when you're at your most happiest it's when you are in the present moment and you're enjoying what's like around you your head's not distracted and that's like a sign of your happiness mm-hmm. so that's really interesting so in 2015 you had an awful injury though you fell seven meters outdoor uh, whilst rock climbing can you take me back to this day and like walk me through what happened on this tragic accident? Yeah, look, I was uh, climbing an outdoor wall with a friend and uh, I've admitted this many times. I was a little bit uh, cocky about, about climbing. Um, so I didn't wear a harness and I took off my shoes and I climbed this outdoor wall and I got to the very top and it was, look, at the time, we estimated that it was about seven meters, but when I went back, the wall is actually twelve to fourteen meters. It's a it's a lot higher, and uh, and I fell maybe about a meter from the top. Um, so I got to the very top, climbed. I put my hands over the edge and just looked out into the horizon. I remember seeing the sunset, and it was just really beautiful. And as I started to climb down a a few moments before I started to climb down I was kind of assessing should I go down the same way or should I go down through the interior of the wall Uh, and uh, the interior of the wall like the wall's quite interesting it's tiered and there's a a, a, like a one meter gap in the middle um, and it's a wooden structure and then in the center it has this like iron staircase that is completely dilapidated and falling apart and so I was like no I'm not doing that (laughs) and so I started to go down the pegs and uh, and the peg that I was holding onto on my right hand just came off and I didn't have enough grip on my left hand to to hold on 
and uh, and I just kind of fell back a little bit, and then I just in a in a second, it was the fastest thing I've ever experienced. So I don't have any recollection of this slow motion thing. It just happened so quickly, and uh, when I landed, I landed on my feet, and I kind of stood there for a second, and then fell back onto onto my back. And I lay down on the floor and my friend was like screaming and running down the wall. And, and uh, I had a few moments where I was like in this, like, oh, like I've, I registered that I was falling and that I fell and I moved. I tried to roll over onto my right side and I felt all the bones in my pelvis go doom, 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 doom. Oh my God. Stack of dominoes. And I lay on my right side for a few moments and I realized that there was something very, very wrong with my right side. At the time I didn't realize it, but I actually completely shattered the right side of my pelvis. My leg had disconnected and it just moved up into my rib cage. So it wasn't connected to the other side anymore. And, uh, and then I had a, a moment there and then I rolled onto my left side. And again, I felt doom, 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 doom. And it just felt like the bizarrest feeling to have your entire body not connected in the way that you're so accustomed to it working. Um, and when I moved, I was feeling things moving in my, in my chest and in my abdomen. And I just had this sinking feeling that there was just something very wrong. And I lay on my left side for a long time. Um, my friend called the ambulance and I just uh, remember people started to congregate and I could hear some people talking about my feet that, you know, there was something really wrong with my feet. And, uh, and I just lay on my side and I kind of zoned everybody out and I was just breathing and I became really, really, really thirsty. I remember that. Um, and just to the point where I wasn't thinking about anything, but I just needed some water and I started seeing blood pool around me and, uh, yeah, I just had a quick glimpse of my foot and realized that my foot wasn't in my body anymore. And, uh, it's just like very instantaneous things. And a few moments later, it was actually about 45 minutes to an hour later, the ambulance arrived. And I remember someone tapping on my shoulder, like, you know, Caroline, are you, are you okay? And it kind of just went, boom, like I was, I was awake in there. Um, and I remember the ambulance talking me through, like, you know, we're going to put this around your neck and he's just like, hold on to your chest. They attached the, um, what is it called? The gurney, I think, onto you and they strap you to it and then they like roll you. And again, I just had this very weird feeling and they picked me up and put me into an ambulance. And at the time I wasn't experiencing any pain at all. Um, just the feeling that my body was in a really precarious situation but I did have these very like trance like moments where I was completely enthralled and hypnotized by the beating of my heart and just my breath I was just I could hear my heart beating in my ears and I was just listening to that I was just listening to my heart beating and I was just breathing and I just kept breathing and just listening to my heartbeat and I became just very hypnotized by that I have a feeling that it's probably what kept me um, present because I kept feeling like I was going to fall asleep. And yeah, yeah, I I didn't fall asleep. I was completely conscious the entire time. And then when I got to the hospital, that's when I really started to feel 
what happened. Um, I had all of these doctors yeah, surround me and then they started cutting my clothes and I was like, where are my clothes going? Like, why are you taking my clothes? And didn't understand. What happened? Yeah. It was it's like, like almost <laughs> like you're having an outer body kind of experience of it. And you know, when you can't see the, like the injury, you, it's almost not as bad to you. But when it, when someone's like telling you, oh, this has happened, this has happened, then it, the panic comes and it like the feeling comes and like drains inwards. And maybe that's like, as you were noticing them, having to, to remove your clothing to assess the injury kind well, of comes when, back when to you. When I removed the clothing, I was just a bit stupid, to be honest with you. It wasn't, I was just, it's it's almost like you regress to becoming a five-year-old person and you have absolutely no intelligence and people are doing things to you and you're just like, oh, this light looks so pretty, like just completely, <laughs> yeah. um, completely high on on pain medication and like all of this stuff that people are giving you and you don't understand or comprehend what's happening. They're asking you to sign waivers and you're like, like holding the pen, like, what am I doing? (laughs) Why am I holding the pen? Uh, It's, it's very bizarre. But then I started to feel quite a lot of pain and I realized that there was something really wrong when, um, yeah. When I got moved into a CT machine, I had uh, about six or seven people surround the bed and they kind of lift this sheet that you're laying on and they pick you up and they move you into the CT. And the moment that they did that, it was just like unbearable. The pain was just so unbearable. And uh, I think I screamed a lot. I like completely filled the room with just screaming and screaming. And uh, yeah, and from then you just, you enter the medical machine and just goes from there. Yeah. So what advice did the doctors give you? Um, Like what was the sort of extent of your injuries and your sort of rehabilitation? So I spent um, almost two months in hospital. I had 14 surgeries, but that was over the course of a little bit longer period of time. Um, so my right foot came out of my body. So they had to put it back in and sew it all up and clean it. And, uh, and I shattered both of my feet. Um, and there was several bones in both of them that shattered. I think they're in my right foot. It was just the calcaneum, but they, it just completely shattered into so many different fragments and um then so my right leg disconnected from my body my pelvis shattered my pubic bone snapped off um the whole thing moved up into my rib cage and uh i had a burst fracture to my spine so it just went and uh, yeah and that was that was kind of the extent of my injury so i had 14 surgeries i had both my feet reconstructed had uh, my right foot pulled back inside my body, my pubic bone reattached, my ilium reconstructed. And uh, and then I had part of my spine, the L1 vertebra and the discs above and below removed. And then I had yeah. an artificial cage put in and rods. And uh, yeah, it took, um, what's, what's quite interesting is that when you change the structure of a bone, it doesn't function as it used to. And so you assume that you break a bone and the doctors are going to surgically put it back together. They're going to reconstruct it. But because you've shattered the bone, the bone doesn't come back together in the same place, in the same positioning. And so it has a very different shape and the shape makes you function and walk differently. So when, when I started to learn how to walk, um, my feet were just so different. 
and they were different yeah. to what they used to be and they were different to each other. And then my pubic bone was a different shape and my hip bone was a different shape. And like a you just got to re get used to your entire body again. Yeah, you have a completely different body. And it took me a good two years to learn how to walk properly. And I walked for a very long time with a limp and in a lot of pain. And it was, look, it was a very hard process because um, you learn, you know, they, they give you this discharge and you go home and, and, you know, you can't walk for three months. Um, and then when you're like, they give you the all clear, okay, like you had your feet reconstructed, you can now walk. When you go to walk, you realize that you just can't. Like I, wow. my right leg didn't move anymore. I didn't know how to move it. It couldn't move at all. I couldn't even like wiggle my foot. I couldn't engage my quads. I couldn't lift my leg. Um, and so when I learned to stand, it was like, oh, now my feet don't even know how to lift Like all I could do was take pressure. And then it took me like, you know, six months to learn how to shuffle. And then like, I didn't even know how to lift my heel up because I lost the ability to do that and to stand on my right leg and all of the things that you learn when you completely shatter your body. So it was a very arduous process and it took a long time, but all in all, it took about two years to learn to walk properly and then an additional four to learn to walk without a limp and without needing crutches that needing to stop every five minutes and take a rest because your feet are so sore so yeah. I'm so impressed to see you in front of me today fully functional um what state was your sort of mind going through throughout this process and how did you sort of look after your mental state uh, <laughs> uh that's it's uh, a good question <laughs> to be honest with you my mind was probably the thing that I had to work on the most and that was the hardest battle because um it's easy when you have your body reconstructed but when it's reconstructed your mind is just in complete bits it's like you know who's ever going to love me again like this or am I am I going to be worthy of doing anything anymore? Like, am I going to be disabled? And, and then having to identify with yourself as, oh, like I'm a woman in my thirties and now I'm disabled and I'm never going to walk again. Like those things, they rest really heavily. And uh, that took a long time. But what I started to do is, um, very early on, I, um, I made a decision that I was going to try and be better than I was before. And at, initially it was a very selfish thing. Like I didn't want to live anymore. And I was like, Oh, like just don't even bother. Um, and I remember my friends just having this immense amount of kindness. They, uh, so I had no insurance at the time. So my, my bills, like hospital bills were just going through the roof And my friends did this GoFundMe and they raised all of this money to pay for some of my hospital bills. And I remember thinking at the time, like, I felt like I didn't deserve to live anymore. And then when they raised all of this money, I was like, oh, like, okay, like someone wants me to be alive. And if Look at all want, these people that do, yeah. Yeah, really. And if they want me to be alive, then I have to do a service to that. I have to do something good with that. So I kind of made this decision, okay, like if I'm going to do this, like if I'm going to stay alive, then I'm going to try and make the most of it. And because I couldn't work anymore, I couldn't do anything but heal, I literally became a professional like 
self-healer <laughs> and I just started researching and reading and I also have a, a BA in medical science and I like I know a lot about the human body so I was just biohacking it and reading and studying my injuries and reading what I could do for it and then I was listening to good things like feeding my mind really good information um, lots of motivational uh, stuff and I was also listening to other amazing people out there who just had similar stories people who had broken all of their bones and people who were paraplegics and people who were in the special olympics and I just like drew so much inspiration from their stories and one person that I just fell in love with was um, this woman called Amy Purdy and she's basically a a Paralympian snowboarder and she has both of her legs amputated. And I was wow. thinking if this woman can snowboard, like I have no excuse. So I just started, um, just started working on how am I going to walk again and trying my best to be the best version. And I vowed to do that until I was better than I was before. And uh, I don't know if I'm there yet, but yeah, it's a, it's a process as well. <laughs> Amazing. Um, it's actually, I think it's Mental Health Week this week and I was listening to the radio in the shop yesterday and they were saying something about how you have to be surrounded by like a positive, healthy environment to look after your like mental health as well. So as long as everything, like this, what you surround yourself with is positive, then that directly feeds to you and you feed back on the environment. So um, it's so important to, to surround yourself with like information and positive stories about other people's success and similar positions to that, because otherwise you just go down like a bit of a rabbit hole. Um, so that, yeah, I think it's really good that you suggest or like that you did that. Look, I'm, I'm going to kind of not correct you there, but just make it more of a reality reframing. I think okay. it's important to surround yourself with real information that is yeah. help and motivate you to move into a positive direction for your own life. But that doesn't mean being unhinged from reality. Um, and yeah. sometimes when there's too much positivity, there's like, there's this, I'm going to release myself from, from the real world. Um, and so like distorted. I, yeah, a little bit like, like I was very much like, okay, I'm disabled, but how can I make the most of this moment? And really acknowledging like one, one of the things that worked very well for me was really like understanding that actually I had done this to myself, but I was responsible entirely for this. It wasn't anybody else's fault. No one else climbed this wall. Um, I climbed it. I chose to be unharnessed. I chose to take my shoes off. No one else was responsible for that. And when I took accountability for that, I wasn't able to lay blame on anybody else or, or become the victim of my circumstance. It was, it was, okay, this is the reality of the situation. I'm taking responsibility. But I also, in laying, laying the weight of it on my own shoulders, I was then kind of free to be like, okay, if I'm the only person responsible, then I'm the only person that can get me out of this. And then it's, it was very much about, okay, well, how do I surround myself with information that's going to help me move in the direction that I want to go to and that isn't unhinged from reality? Yeah. Okay. No, that makes so much sense. It's how you sort of progress as well. Like you take the ownership of the situation look at what happened and then evaluate what you do next. 
Um, so yeah. yeah. Um, do you think after what you've gone through that the human body is more fragile or the human body is stronger than we give it credit for? I think both are right. I think uh, the human body is very fragile. And once you break it, it takes a long time to fix. Um, and you have to be very, very strong and very um, resilient. And that's, that's what makes it hard. It's the resilient part. Because uh, I don't know if you've read, so there's a very interesting author called Nassim Taleb, and he, he has this book called Anti-Fragile. And the book talks about, uh, say, the human psyche having three components to it. And one of them is this sense of fragility. So it's like we are a glass. We drop the glass, the glass breaks. And uh, the problem with the glass is that it, it can never change or grow or fix itself. It just completely sh is shattered. Um, and then he talks about this concept of being robust and robust is like a ball. You know, you throw the ball on the floor, the ball doesn't break, but it doesn't change or grow or modulate. And uh, then he has this final discussion, which is, you know, about being anti-fragile. And it's this concept of I'm going to fall, I'm going to break, I'm going to make mistakes, I'm going to do things that are wrong, but I'm going to make myself stronger as a result of that and come out of it resilient and what he so he coined this term anti-fragility and he kind of coined it as this term where whatever breaks you actually makes you so much more resilient and makes you grow and uh, become stronger as a result of it and the process from like so the human psyche becoming anti-fragile is such a it's tough it's really yeah. tough um, it's a hard process, but of course, but you have to you have to push yourself there. Otherwise, life is going to beat you. It really will. And uh, if you want to live a life that's worth living, then you have to, as Brene Brown says, you know, you have to step into the arena. You have to be willing to put yourself out there and to to completely like take faith yeah yeah and if you do that and if you do that sincerely and enough then you're going to get your ass whooped and you're going to break <laughs> and you're going to fall and and when those things happen are you resilient enough to be able to withstand those things that's, that's amazing it's such a good analogy <laughs> since this time you've made an impressive comeback in the climbing world um when you climb now does do it your past anxieties ever spike or do you feel like you can push through and like knowing what you know and move forward without it like bothering you? Um, look, anxiety is not something that, um, that I suffer from. And normally I think the reason being is that when I'm there, I, j I really have no expectations um, of myself. I'm just so happy that I'm walking and that I have the opportunity to do the amazing things that I have um, on offer to me. And it's just such a beautiful experience to go there. So I don't put any pressure on myself. Like sometimes I think to myself, oh, why did I do this? Like I had a few moments uh, in 2019, I decided I was going to go and climb every mountain in the Middle East and try and be the first woman in the world to summit them alone. Um, and now I think like, what was I thinking? But it was, uh, it was an amazing experience. And the whole time that I was there, I was just thinking like, I'm just so lucky. And, and the, that's the thing I really was. I was so lucky. Um, and I had moments where I was like, oh, 
oh, like, what have I got myself into? But just to be present in nature and just to think like, oh my God, like I'm in Iran or I'm in Turkey and I'm in Bahrain and I'm in Saudi Arabia. Like I had such beautiful moments on each of them that you didn't think about, about anything else. Like I remember saying to my friends, they have all these misconceptions about the countries in the Middle East. And I remember going to, to Saudi Arabia and being like chased by this colony of baboons there was about 50 <laughs> and amazing uh, yeah, they were just all scurrying down the mountain and you know like making all their noises and running and I was like oh my god like like running away from baboons and uh and just what a great experience though it's so funny yeah, it was amazing and to think like oh my god I didn't even realize Saudi Arabia had baboons I didn't even know that they had mountains and and the mountains look like Jurassic Park and it's just beautiful so you're there and you're just pinching yourself like wow this is this is beautiful it's really beautiful what other wildlife did you see on your on your like trip? Um, I saw a lot of a lot of very interesting interesting things. Like one thing that I love about the Middle East is that it has this. It's has a little bit of notoriety. You know, it has a lot of rumors. A lot of people have interesting things to say about it. But my experience of it is not that case. My experience is just very different. I've had such a an amazing time living in the Middle East. And when I got to travel around it, it really opened my eyes to how different it was. Like when I went to Iraq, I, I wasn't able to climb the mountain because I had some, there were some political issues at the time. So I didn't get to climb the mountain. Um, but I went to a steakhouse and I went to a bar okay. and there was like, there was a wine bar. And I was like, am I really standing in Iraq drinking a glass of wine? <laughs> doesn't make sense. <laughs> Especially when you thought you were going to be climbing. <laughs> and, and like, so although I didn't get to see all of the beautiful animals there, I just had this very bizarre experience of each of the countries that I went to and they were just, just really lovely. And the hospitality was just amazing. Like I met some Iraqi friends there and they were like, Caroline, you're in Iraq. Like, come try Iraqi food. And I sat down and the whole table was full of food, every dish they had ever created. And I was like, you know, I can't eat all of this. I'm like, but you must try everything. <laughs> it's just so, it's so lovely to be in a place where people are so proud of their culture and their history. And they just want to show you everything and they want you to try everything and experience everything. And they're just so shocked. Like when I was in Iran, people were like, oh, like you, you're Australian. This is amazing. Welcome to Iran. Let me show you this. And, and I got really like, addicted to the food actually so more so than the animals it's like pistachio butter and like- yum oh my god yum that sounds so good so expectations versus like the reality was a completely different ball game for for yeah. you when you were there yeah totally. um what kind of what kind of dishes and stuff was on the table obviously you mentioned the pistachio butter there's a lot of a lot of meat that I, i'm yeah, a vegetarian okay. so it was a little bit challenging but yeah um, fair enough yeah there was a lot of meat but look people what I was really surprised is that people were just so lovely really lovely and it was such an eye-opening experience um and that was what was just you know if, if people come to Australia as a as a tourist 
you're not going to be like, oh, like welcoming all the tourists and taking them out to dinner and inviting them to try every Australian cuisine. Yeah. It doesn't happen. Um, and people were really going out of their way to help you and to, to look after you and to make sure that you were safe. And yeah, it was an amazing experience. And I saw the Middle East in such a different light. And each country has their own kind of little quirks and things that are really cute about them. And yeah, it's, it's a very interesting experience. Like some countries I was in a Shayla, other countries I was taking my Shayla off. And, and yeah. yeah, it was interesting. So which of the countries were you able to travel through and which of the countries were you unable to travel through for one reason or another, just to get a, so, a, a scope? I went to, so basically um, I was attempting to to do a Guinness World Record to summit all the mountains from the Middle East and the Arabian Peninsula. Yeah. And the I traveled to Turkey first. So I did Mount Ararat in Turkey. And then, um, so that I think is about 5,200 meters. So I did that, flew straight into Iran and uh, climbed Mount Damavand, which is five, six, yeah, 5,600 um, and something meters. And then I came back to Dubai for about half a day um, and then flew straight away to Lebanon um, and climbed, uh, I can't remember the name of this mountain, um, the highest mountain in Lebanon. And then we went to Mount Hermon in Syria. And uh, in Syria, I had a little bit of a, a problem. I wasn't able to go to the very top. So we climbed about three quarters of the way and about two or 300 meters from the top. We weren't able to go, again, just the political situation. It sits yeah. on the anti-Lebanon mountain range and borders uh, Israel and uh, Syria and Lebanon. And there's patrols and guards and, and the guards, the Syrian guards were actually coming down the mountain. And so the guard wow. that I had at the time was like, no, let's go. Come on. <laughs> Come oh, my on. gosh. That sounds scary. Got, yeah. He just got nervous and he didn't want me to get kidnapped. And yeah. Which well, is yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I read this thing online recently, which was um, some tourists talking about Syria and they were saying how beautiful the landscape was and how beautiful mm -hmm. the place was. But I looked it up and it was written before the like, obviously the war had kicked off there. Mm -hmm. Did you get a sense of that like beautiful landscapes or when you were there, did it just feel a bit un unrested and uneasy? No, look, I have been to Syria before the war and it was very, very beautiful, especially I've only been to Damascus and Damascus prior to the war was just, it's, yeah, have you ever seen Indiana Jones? When he's yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of has this very like Indiana Jones, like, oh my God, it feels like one of those places that, that you go to before all the tourists go. And so you yeah. really see its authentic self. You don't see like, these capital cities full of like tourist spots. Tourism, yeah. yeah and so it's like um, organic. Yeah, selling you like rubbish. Um, it's you go into stores and they're actually selling you Syrian artifacts and they're actually selling you rugs and actually selling you things that are that are really authentic and, and that's amazing. Yeah. And that's beautiful. And when I visited it after the war, um, I only went to the mountain range. So I only went to Mount Hermon. So I didn't get a chance to see the city. I just saw 
the the landscape like the mountains and they're always beautiful like really really beautiful um yeah, and for sure. mount hamon is just such a, a beautiful mountain what i didn't realize actually as well is when i was doing this whole mountains in the middle east adventure um that actually most of the mountains in the middle east have some form of religious kind of context to them and so they all have this like beautiful story behind them. So Mount Ararat is the birthplace of Noah's Ark. So apparently Noah's Ark is there. Mount Hermon cool. is the, the place where Christ had his, uh, it's not the resurrection. It's something, re- it's something else. Something happened to Jesus Christ on that mountain. Um, and so you can actually go to the place. So we visited the place where apparently he drank water from this like pond and, and that's insane. Yeah. I'm, I'm so not, much history and culture there. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm not a very religious person, but it was just beautiful. And again, in Iraq, it's so Erbil is the oldest inhabited, continuously inhabited city in the world. And again, you go there and it's just very authentic. And you hear like the Garden of Eden. And I'm like, I didn't even realize that this was real. And yes, <laughs> in Iraq. Um, so you just get this real sense of, oh, I'm, I'm taking this pilgrimage like back in time and uh, getting to see just these amazing places. Um, that everyone knows about, but maybe yeah. don't go and see. And it, yeah, it's so much perspective that comes with that. Yeah, of course. So just to respond to your question, I ended up going to... Um, Again, I had trouble in Syria and then I left Syria and went to, um, what did I go to? So Iraq, uh, then I went to Iraq after Syria um, and then to Jordan and Egypt. And uh, I had a little bit of trouble in Egypt. I ended up climbing Moses' mountain, again, another religious mountain instead of St. Catherine. So Moses' mountain is, um, is obviously the burning bush and Moses. So again, I was like, oh, okay, I'm just doing this whole like, Christian um, and Judaism and kind of Islam pilgrimage across this just beautiful history. And uh, from there, from Egypt, I ended up going to Saudi Arabia. I climbed the mountain in Saudi Arabia, again, in Abha, on the border of of, uh, Saudi and Yemen. And that was beautiful. Just rolling hills that look like Jurassic Park and seeing baboons and just I was like what this is Saudi Arabia (laughs) this exists (laughs) I couldn't believe it honestly you should have a look at some some photos it's literally like Jurassic Park like these very prominent like hills and they're pointy and they have all of this forest on them dense dense forest and uh you have the clouds underneath you and they're just these giant fat clouds and it's just beautiful it does not feel like Saudi Arabia at all and at the yeah, time it sounds breathtaking yeah it was really breathtaking when I went there Saudi was just going through its it's a lot of the restrictions were changing and so I went in there without an albaya without a shayla and it just felt very like oh wow okay <laughs> have to cover up um and I can climb the mountain as a woman which was amazing it's actually quite a pivotal point in the history of it yeah. of um tourism to the area yeah that well. changed yeah. a lot and uh, again just traveling through Jeddah and tra- traveling through Riyadh and seeing women come into the airports without so you, obviously you still see a lot of people it's it's their religious right to wear what they want to and so they're in their shalas and their albayas and then you saw a lot of female tourists that were 
not covered. And uh, that mm. was like, wow, this is, you know, the Middle East is really changing. So after that, I went to Bahrain and uh, then to Kuwait. And then I wasn't able to go to Qatar because, again, had some issues um, and then flew to Oman and then from Oman to the UAE. And I did all those three countries, Kuwait, Oman and the UAE in one day. It was Wow. Yeah, was what a journey. And uh, from the UAE, I was meant to go to Palestine and Yemen and then just obviously wasn't able to go to those two countries either. So although I had planned to do 15 countries and 15 like country high points in uh, 30 days, I ended up going to, I think it was 11 countries, climbing about 10 mountains. Um, but again, no expectations. Like, yeah. I, was very fortunate to be in a place where I was like, look, I'm going to do this. If, if I get this world record, amazing. If I don't, I'm not bothered because like, how amazing is this? Um, so it's experience. Yeah. Yeah. So with that kind of mindset, I was just, I was just happy. So it was good. Yeah. You mentioned earlier on that you summited, was it Mount Damavit? How's it? How do you pronounce it? Damavan. Damavad. Um, is that one the active volcano? Yes, yeah. Am I right yeah, in thinking? comes out of it, yeah. <laughs> What's the difference between climbing like a volcano or a mountain? Um, so it depends how active they are, but the, the volcanoes, if they're active volcanoes, they have some form of tectonic activity. And so you may experience earthquakes or tremors. Um, in addition, like, like Mount Amavand has these, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but these firm, thermoloads, these, basically these holes that sulfur pours out of. So when you look at the mountain from a distance, you see this beautiful cloud that just hovers above the volcano but it's actually this cloud of sulfur and uh, (laughs) it looks it has this greeny kind of yellowy color to it and uh, you can smell the sulfur and I actually got really sick from the sulfur like I I was gonna say isn't that like hazardous yeah I had sulfur poisoning when I came down and really bad headaches and was just extremely fatigued but Oh, it was, it's a beautiful mountain. But again, like the history of that mountain, I don't know if you know anything. Do you want me to tell you about it? Give me a, give me a run, run through. Yeah. So <laughs> basically, there used to be this, this prince, this Persian prince, and he was kind of possessed by this snake-ish kind of evil spirit. And uh, the snake convinced the prince to kill his father and take hold of the, the kingdom. And so he did. And the snake ended up latching onto his shoulders and grew these two snakes and started to cannibalize like children. Anyway, it's a very dark story. Wow. Um, but what happened is there was this Persian hero that eventually grabbed the evil king and killed him. So he slayed him and put the evil spirit inside the crater of Mount Damavand. And they say that that's the spirit that lives in there. It's entrapped in that mountain. So then this Persian hero stood on the top of Mount Damavand and with this beautiful arrow, he threw the arrow all over and he marked the borders of Iran. And so (laughs) the mountain is basically etched in the history of the entire country. And it's just this beautiful sacred mountain that is, this is the source of where our country uh, started from it's just it's really lovely so that's incredible I think that mountains mentioned in quite a lot of their literature and their poetry um, as a region as well which would make total sense for that background story yeah. that's really yeah. interesting 
So I have loads of stories of <laughs> mountain mythology. <laughs> Does that mean that when you were breathing in the sulfurs, it was actually the bad spirit of the I hope person not, trapped inside there? <laughs> you know what I am going to say? I feel like I get a bit uh superstitious about mountains so i like to understand who they are because i really feel like they all have their own this is going to sound crazy but they they all have their own persona and i know when i was in mount ararat so ararat is like the birthplace of where noah's ark is and when you go to mount ararat the the base of it is a bit like dull but when you get to the higher camps you are literally like you're on top of the earth and you can kind of see the arc of the earth and you can see the clouds underneath you and the sun is like this ethereal ball and you really like i'm not kidding you feel like you've just seen god (laughs) it's like oh my god it feels like heaven and then mount damavant has a very different feel to it it's very dark and there's sulfur and it has it's all green and And when I was climbing the mountain, I was literally having this battle with myself in my head. Like, I can't, I kept looking at the donkeys, just like, should I get a donkey down? Maybe like no one will know that I haven't climbed the mountain. I can just get a donkey to take me up. Like, I started to (laughs) You can feel the presence of it. Yeah. The the mountain and its personality. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. You absorb that personality. So I like to know the mountain that I'm climbing. But that was something that I observed that was really interesting about about the, the presence and the spirit of the mountain because I have never in my life had so much negative conversation as I did when I was on that mountain. And as soon wow. as I got off, it just disappeared. And I was like, yeah. wow, this is insane. So, yeah. That's, that's crazy. How long does it take to summit different mountains or does it vary depending on which one it is? Yeah, it varies on the height. And it varies on the acclimatization. So I'm quite fortunate that I don't, like, knock on wood, I don't get uh, altitude sickness. Um, So I've climbed to about a little bit higher than 6,000 meters. And so far I can climb them in about four or five days and not have any altitude sickness. So I did... um, Mount Ararat in four days and Damavand in four days. Uh, but normally it would take you about five to seven to, to go up and down about a week. Cool. Um, anything above like between five to 6,000 meters is about a week. And then, um, yeah, if you're going any higher, then it can take two weeks or it can take three weeks. And then mountains like Everest take two months because it really yeah, okay. acclimatization. Yeah. And how do you, what are your sleeping arrangements when you're doing a journey like that? Are you camping as you go up or? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's grim. It's very grim. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you have to carry everything with you as well. Yep, yep. And then you mm. have a, a donkey that's like your porter that helps you carry stuff up. And yeah, you smell and you're in the same clothes and you live in a tent. <laughs> like it's, it's really, it's really grim. It's not, you know, when you see all these beautiful Instagram photos of like mountain life, mountain life is yeah. It's really dirty. Expectation versus reality again. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, you so shower funny. with a wet wipe, you go to the toilet in the bush. And uh, yeah. Think, yeah, I get really cold. So some days I'm just like wet wipes and I don't even take my clothes off because it's so cold. <laughs> Fair enough. And did you ever run out of supplies or have you ever like overshot or undershot packing supplies? 
Um, I have been in situations where, look, look I've learned a lot from, from climbing um, to always be prepared. I had yeah. quite interesting, it's, it's definitely better to be prepared for sure. Um, not, I've never run out of supplies, but I've definitely been in situations where I thought, oh, okay, like when I was in Turkey, I didn't have a knife. And then you realize like you really need a knife. Um, not, not for, you just, you need one just on the mountain, on mountain life, you get stuck to stuff and you just need a knife. Um, when I was in Oman, we had a huge change in weather and it started hailing and storming and torrential rain. And it was fog that you couldn't even see in front of you. And there I was wow. I, for the first time I used a satellite phone um, and we actually had to get the military to escort us off the mountain because it got so dangerous up there. So, uh, yeah, like in, in terms of the weather. So the weather can change and you definitely need to be prepared and have the right equipment and make sure that you always like pack extras of everything and painkillers. It's the one thing that you need because painkillers and Band-Aids and blister cream and like chafing cream and, yeah, deodorant, yeah. The full supply. Yes, the essentials. <laughs> Yeah. And whilst you were completing your world record attempt, you partnered up with the Golf Figure charity. Um, and I noticed that you're a brand ambassador for them too. Can you tell me about your link with the charity and how they supported your world record attempt? Yeah. So I um, approached Golf for Good about wanting, so in the Middle East, raising money for charities is a very difficult feat. Um and I partnered up with them to kind of be able to get the appropriate licensing. And then we picked a charity that we wanted to support. And uh, from there, I just supported, I basically raised money for Golf for Good itself. So it's a nonprofit charity that's based out of the UAE and the UK. And they, um, yeah, they are always looking for sustainability. They need to be sustainable. I'm always looking for donations. And so I raised money for them. And I was very fortunate that DHL sponsored the trip. And so we were able to collaborate together and, and they did some events as well to help raise money for, for Golf for Good. So, yeah. Amazing. Uh, you also traveled to Peru with them to build boarding houses for yeah. a school out there. What yeah. was that experience like? Um, it was so Machu Picchu. It was beautiful. Um, it was really beautiful, very eye-opening. I've actually done a few challenges with them and actually my next mountain challenge is also supporting them as well. So um, in Peru, we built boarding houses for young girls and uh, I did Kilimanjaro as well with them and we, um, we raised money for the Armani Children's Home. And, uh, and now in my next challenge, the Volcanic Seven Summits, we are raising money for, um, it is Street Child in Nepal. So raising money for trafficked children and women in Nepal. So, yeah. Super good cause. How can listeners um, contribute to that and find you online to donate as well? So we are in the process of, of developing links, but on my Instagram page, you'll be able to find a link that will take you to a donation page uh, with Golf for Good. I think the licensing is still being approved. So once that's, okay. that's done and ready, then, then it will be ready for sure. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So work in progress, but we'll find it on your Instagram. Yes, exactly. And can you tell us your Instagram handle? Yeah, it's uh, Caroline and then dot D dot Leon. Mm -hmm. 
Amazing. Um, and before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you a bit about the business. You mentioned it earlier um, called A Life of Education. Mm-hmm. So what inspired you to launch that company? Um, after I had my accident, I was looking for um, I was looking for a PT basically to help me rehab. And what I found uh, when I started that is there was a lot of people that were saying that they were rehab PTs, but actually didn't really know what to do. Um, and, uh, I then started to, to think, okay, well, what, what do people need in order to be able to access this type of information? And, uh, they needed it to be affordable and they needed it to access it everywhere to not take time off work. And, and then, uh, we started filming lectures and creating online content and we built this platform and then put it on the platform and it just kind of grew from there. And it was really like, it started off as a passion project. Um, kind of grew. I just really felt like, do you know what I felt like? I felt like I didn't want anybody to go through what I went through. I didn't want anybody else to like, like you get into this very vulnerable place when you're like post recovery, post accident, and you're vulnerable physically and mentally and spiritually in every way that you can possibly imagine. Um, and you need really good people around you. You need physios and doctors and physiotherapists that you can trust um, and PTs that you can trust relentlessly. And, uh, and I just felt like, oh, like I felt a little bit disheartened. And then I started to find these amazing people everywhere. And uh, I just wanted to be able to help other people be able to get access to the information um, because I was so fortunate. I had a degree um, and so when somebody would say, okay, we're going to do this to your pelvis, I understood what that meant. And yeah. I understood what, when I was reading clinical studies about post-surgical outcomes, I understood all of the jargon behind that. And I understood the rehabilitation process. And, and so when I was encountered with people that were being disingenuous, I really knew that there are so many people out there that don't, they don't know. Yeah. Uh, They'd be... There's so many people that would find it so overwhelming to read this information that they then then had to do extracurricular re- reading to understand what it meant in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then if some of that wasn't viable or if it was a bit misleading, while you're also in such a vulnerable position, that could really t- like taint the whole process. So mm-hmm. that's a really amazing platform that you've put together. Um, and again, how can how can listeners find find that online? What yes. is the handles for that? They go to alifeofeducation.com. They'll be able to find all of the courses on there. And then there's an Instagram page as well. So they can have a look and scroll through. Yeah. Amazing. And is there anything on your bucket list that you haven't ticked off yet? Mm, so I am in the process of trying to do the volcanic seven summits this year. And I kind of secretly want to climb Everest. I've like yeah. this secret obsession with, with Everest for a long time, but um, I've watched enough movies and enough like documentaries about it to know that if I go there, I don't want to be one of those silly people that is paying loads of money and completely unprepared. So mm, okay. when, when I had, um, I've had that in the back of my mind that I've wanted to do it for a long time. And so that's why I decided I was going to climb the volcanic seven summits first. Um, Cause it felt like, like I'm not ready for Everest and I'm not ready for those 8,000 meter mountains. So what is something that's achievable and within, you know, my field of, uh, 
of skill, my skill set, basically. I didn't want to make the same mistake I made before and be too arrogant about my skill set. So I was like, this I can do. So I'm going to do this yeah. and then let's see. So my bucket list is probably that. And I've always wanted to climb Denali as well. That's on my bucket list too. Yeah, lots of climbing stuff. Good, excellent. Well, good luck with all of those. Thank you so much for joining me on Thinking Off Peace, Caroline. You've been a pleasure to talk with. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> no problem. If you want to support the charities mentioned in this podcast and donate to their cause, you can follow the links in the episode summary to find out more. Thinking Off Peace is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass.